Hi, friends. This is episode 81 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. I am so excited because we're starting a new series with this episode. It's a series all about the intertwined story of Joseph and God. And this is Joseph uh, with the coat of many colors. That's why this series is called A Life of Many Colors. And if you haven't come by this podcast through our website, I invite you to go to our website, thebiblelab.com, go to the episodes page, and then scroll down till you see the graphic for A Life of Many Colors. That will take you to the page on which this episode not only resides, but also there's a study guide, a little red icon that you can click on and make sure that you uh, download the study guide. It's free and it just helps you with some of the, the things that we go through and definitely helps you see some of the things we didn't even have to uh, have the time to go through. This is a story about what do you do with your dysfunctional family? <laughs> And I'm sure uh, just about everyone listening to this has something in common with Joseph that you had no idea before. But what you see is how God can even use that dysfunction to bring about growth in you and to help you become everything that God made you to be. And I can't wait for you to get into this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Number one, most of the people in this room were more spoiled than I was as a child. Most of the people in this room were more spoiled than I was as a child. Oh, wow. Okay, so hold them up. Please hold them up. I am not seeing that many yeses. I'm not seeing that many yeses. I'm seeing maybe uh, 20% yes. I'm seeing uh, about 50% noes and the rest maybes. So what in the world could that possibly mean? Is this a spoiled crowd? Is that what we're saying? You were spoiled? I was not spoiled, as you can tell. No, no, we were, we were too poor for me to be spoiled uh, growing up. Uh, in, in fact, in fact, my mom's gonna love this one, uh, because the only time we really used the word spoiled in our house was when they quoted the phrase, perhaps this phrase was quoted in your house too, spare the rod, spoil the child. <laughs> we spared no rods in our house. In fact, some well-meaning person, I'm sure, told my mother that the original Hebrew word for rod could also properly be interpreted as a fly swatter or a wooden spoon. Yes. So I was not spoiled. <laughs> that took a while back there. Number two, one of my siblings was given more things from our parents than me. Oh, look at this. Wow. It's about 55% yes and 45% no. Can you feel the animosity in the room? Wow. 
Today's story, I, I know why I received so many messages this week saying, thank you for doing the story of Joseph. It's my favorite story. I know why. <laughs> and you're not picturing yourself as Joseph. Because you've gone through some pain of seeing favoritism. I think one of the toughest things as I've worked with families, counseled with families, is whenever a family says, we're not, I know that's the issue we gotta, we got to work on. Especially when a family says, uh, we're not a family that played favorites. Everyone was treated equally. You know what's impossible to do when you're raising your kids? Is treat everyone equally. You can't. Because your kids aren't the same. And your kids' needs aren't the same. So if you say it over and over again, you're reinforcing to your kids that you're clueless <laughs> because they see it. Number three, kids should get a job and get out of the house as soon as possible. Oh, yeah, I'm hearing some comments going on today. Look at this. I'm seeing a majority of, of yes. I am seeing about 55% yes but I'm only seeing about 20%, 25% no. The rest are maybes. It's interesting to see how old the people were who said yes <laughs> and how young the parents were that said no. We're going to see a story today about a young man who did not have to go to work. A young man... I say young man, in his day at age 17, we're going to go into detail a little bit more about this, but at age 17, at the time of the story taking place, you were definitely an adult. Nowadays we say 18, you're treated as an adult in a court of law, right? In those days, uh, no. 17, you should have already had your career. You're already working hard. By age 12, you're working hard. So 17 is five years after the expected date that you'd be responsible and get out of the house and get a job. We're going to talk about, in the story of Joseph, why it's such a big deal that he's 17 and he's not out working with his brothers. Ah, you know, I had that same coloring book that said he was a shepherd and he was out helping his brothers. Unfortunately... I'm going to ruin some of your pictures of this beautiful, poor, innocent Joseph. They're just picking on him. <laughs> and what you're going to see in the story is one of the most beautiful pictures of how God takes people who are not perfect. He takes people who are not innocent and he takes people who are not mature, and he says, I choose you. I'm going to work through you. I got all these other people I could work with who are more mature, they're more responsible, they're more active, and I'm, I'm going to choose you. And in today's story, I don't want to crush your view of Joseph. I'm going to give you a realistic view of Joseph, and in the end, you're going to walk out and say, if God can use Joseph, he can use me. Because the stories in the Bible are not about God using perfect people. 
He's about calling the unqualified. And he qualifies the called. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. Number four, God sometimes leads you into bad situations so that you'll experience pain. Hmm. We are in a big mix here. It's a split. <clears throat> I think the yeses might have a few more than the noes, but it's pretty close to 50-50 split. And then I see about 10 maybes out there. And Mike is raising all three cards because he has no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay, Mike. I barely know what I'm talking about, too. We're going to talk about this today because one of the Jewish beliefs in this story, we're going to talk about a very common teaching that the Jews would repeat as they were teaching this story before the time of Christ, is that God himself led Joseph into harm's way. When Joseph's lost, he can't find his brothers. God himself said, no, I need you to experience pain. We're going to talk about what that says about God today. Number five, God wants you to share his visions, even if it will cause divisions in your family. God wants you to share his visions, even if it will cause divisions in your family. Okay, I'm seeing a very brave crowd today. Majority, yes. I'm seeing about 90% yes, 5% no, and 5% maybe. Yes. Despite what divisions it may cause in my family, God needs me to share what he's placed on my heart. And I think that's, I, I think that's true for most of the time. But there's also times that you've tried to share what God's placed on your heart, and it's not only fallen flat, you've gotten into an argument with your family member because it just wasn't the right time. Or maybe what God placed on your heart was just for you, but you thought it was for everybody. Joseph goes through the same thing because for some reason God gives this immature young man visions of leadership, visions of being the hero at a time when nobody wants to hear it. Because at a time, he's not helping them out. They're all tired of working for him, tired of bowing to him. So we're going to see there are things sometimes God shares with you that he also needs you to pray for God timing. Because your good timing is bad timing. He needs you to use God timing, not your own timing of, boy, I'm excited, I need to share this right now. We're going to talk about that as well today. To start out, we're going to look at the first couple of verses uh, of Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look at verses 2 to 4. We'll talk about it for a while, and then we'll get into the rest of the chapter. The NIV reads Genesis 37, 2 through 4. It says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zopah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Let's take a step back. What's going on in this story? We've got to rewrite it, because the felt board or the coloring book that we grew up with just showed this poor, innocent young lad 
maybe 12, maybe 14. He's just coming out to just check on his brothers. He's too young to work, too young to have calluses. But scripture tells us he's 17. And in these days, 17 was not seen as an age of childhood. It would be viewed similarly to a 30 to 40-something living in his parents' basement and playing video games today. Same feeling. He was being raised in a coddling environment that created arrested development of his mind and character. He did not tend the large flocks far away with his legitimate brothers. Instead, he was kept close to home with a smaller flock that was tended by the sons of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. So as you're looking at this, imagine there are 10 brothers that are sent out to actually do the family business. They're sheep herders. They're raising these sheep. This is what's actually providing for the family wealth. These brothers are out there working hard. They have to figure out what are we going to eat? Do we have enough water? Who's going to be cooking tonight? Where are we going to move? Because you can't stay still for too long. Where are we going to sleep? Joseph, on the other hand, is staying in the family tent, kicking back. Takes a look out the tent flap. Yep, the few sheep that we keep here so we have stuff to eat on hand. So we have milk, we have all the stuff we need. Basically, it's the pantry. It's out the flap. Yep, doing fine. It even tells us that Joseph was not a roll up your sleeves, let's go work hard, let's, let's get in there, no complaints. This whole phrase of he brought their father a bad report about them in, in the end of verse 2. Bad report is not the way this word is translated in the rest of Scripture. There are other places that use this same Hebrew word for bad report. Your notes here say the narrator does not tell us whether the report was true or false. But the word that's used here kind of lets you know whether it was and why Joseph is saying this phrase. Because this word, uh, or this phrase, dibetam ra'ah, is used elsewhere to refer to gossip, plotting, and misinformation. Your kids ever give you a bad report about the other kids? Why are they typically doing that? I'll tell you why my kids do. They're trying to get out of work. If they can complain about the other, I can say, I can get mad and say, well, they need to do it themselves then. We need to teach them a lesson, don't we, spoiled son of mine? So Joseph, this is not a, a good intro. This is not a good picture of a young man who's a hard-working guy that's just innocent. It's a 17-year-old living in his dad's basement, playing games all day, and when he does go to work, he brings back gossip and misinformation so he can get out of more work. Not a good picture. 
Now, I see some mics up, and, and we're going to take whatever their comment is, but while this comment is happening, I want you to be thinking, why do you think God wants us to know that the hero of our story started out as an immature, pampered, gossiping manipulator? Why would that be important for us to know individually? So I want you to be pondering that. Let's talk about that. And we're going to start out here, Sharon, with your comment. <clears throat> I was just going to comment that years ago, reading the history of the First World War, the author said, we would understand medieval history a lot better if we realized that most of the uh, protagonists were teenagers. Yes. Joseph may have been viewed as a man as far as responsibilities were concerned, but I, let's remember, did their brains mature much, much faster than ours? I think he was still a teenager. I think, I think you're correct mentally, but I think sociologically, if, if you compared him to others his age, they might have the same conclusion his 10 brothers had, that he was annoying, that he was immature, and that life would be a whole lot better if he stopped breathing. Um, and so as you look at the situation of his upbringing, it's kind of like you grandparents. I know how it is because I, I hear you talking about it often. The grandkids come over. Now, I'm sorry, but that grandkid is a holy terror <laughs> when the parents are around. But you've laid down the ground rules, haven't you? And at grandpa and grandma's house, that kid doesn't act up. He doesn't smart mouth, he doesn't smash things, he's just a sweet, dear angel. Until the parents come to pick them up. And you almost just want to take them to the car, don't you? Just take the kid to the car because the moment the parent shows up, that kid's acting out behavior is horrible. You don't even like that kid anymore. Because the kid has learned an environment in which they get what they want. It's human nature. And so when the parent is there making excuses for the kid's behavior, allowing the kid to act this way and not having discipline, and the kid acts out, whose fault is it? The kids, the parents, or whose? I, I, am I speaking into your life? Yes. You know this is true. So as we take a look at Joseph... Yes, he may have had these character flaws starting out, but where did he get them? Who's his dad? Who's his grandpa? Is there some issues going on in the family that have led to this, situ this situation that blows your mind? Of all people who would show favoritism, don't you think Joseph's father, Jacob, would be the last person to set up a system of favoritism? And Carolyn says no. Because unless we learn, history repeats itself, doesn't it? When you look at what's happening with Jacob, what's his story? How was how life between he and his brother? Did they grow up together? This great relationship of brothers doing things together, growing up together, supporting each other, best man in each other's wedding? No. Why? 
because Jacob was the favorite of his mama. And that mama wanted that son to get the birthright so much that she's willing to take her other son's birthright and completely steal it away from him. Her own son. Because she loved the younger son so much more. We're going to see some things that are parallels here that we wish were not parallel in this story or in our family stories either. Carolyn. Yeah, we see it so much in, as you work with families that there's always one child that is favoritism, et cetera. It seems yeah. like it. Yeah. And obviously this family had a history of this. Leah, mm -hmm. Rachel, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, everybody had been playing favorites all the way along. It's not surprising that he had a favorite and that, it, yes, of course, it was his child of his old age. And they, you know, they say that in verse three, like as if that was an excuse. Unfortunately, <laughs> that helps the child be raised as an incompetent person. Yeah. Your question was, why did we, God want us to know about the real true character of this history so that we can see that we need to make some changes if we're going to accomplish things for God too. Yeah. And especially in our children, there's a phenomenon, I'm not a psychologist, I don't have probably the right terminology for it, but there's the, there has to be somebody in the family that's called the change breaker, or yeah. the change maker, the person that will stop the family history line yeah. and turn it towards the right direction. Yeah. And I think that's so important in families to understand that there has to be somebody that does that. Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine how the story would be different had Jacob been the cycle breaker? Let me ask you a question before I go to the next comment. Where is Jacob and his sons living at, at this time? Are they outside the promised land or inside the promised land? They're in it. They are in the promised land. Now, okay, so God calls Abraham and says, I need you to go and possess this land. This is the land I promised to you. That's why they call this promised land. So he moves there. He settles it. His son Isaac settles it. Now Jacob settles it. They're in the promised land. What's Exodus, the book of Exodus, all about? Trying to get back to the promised land. Right? Why? Because unless you break the cycle, you can literally step yourself out of paradise and generations to come. The beautiful thing about this story, and we're going to see this as we go through all the, uh, the, the chapters dealing with the story of Joseph, is despite the fact that families stay in the cycle that ultimately leads them out of God's promise, God's paradise, God still doesn't give up and he does everything he can through generation after generation to make sure that he can bring you back to the promised land. He can bring you back to paradise. And he's still working on us today because we ourselves have stepped outside of paradise. And God is doing everything that he can to step us back in. That said, you're going to see throughout this series a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels from this story and the life of Christ and the salvation plan of the Godhead. You're going to see a lot of parallels. You're also going to see a lot of parallels between this time and the time of Moses and how God's desire is to take broken people to work with us, to lead us back, to save his people. And thirdly, we're going to get to it in a moment, you're going to see 
the person who's in charge, you, you know, like they give out the, the Emmy Awards and the, the, the big Golden Globes and stuff like that, and there's always an award for costume designer and wardrobe. This person needs an award in this story. And you see why, because as Joseph has costume changes, they're always signifying these great transitions in his life. In the same way, the story of Christ is the same way. That's why they tell you from his birth what he's wearing all the way to the cross to tell you about what's stripped off of him and what's gambled for and how they dress him up in royal garments. Because the story of Joseph is very much a story trying to help you understand what happens with broken families and God's desire and his success in saving those families so he still has a chance to work with them and bring them back to the promised land. And so we're going to have some fun with that. I think the red microphone might have been next. Yes. I'd like to suggest, too, that um, when you look back at the ancestry from Abraham, that there was very much a dysfunctional family in many ways. Yes. And I think that dysfunctional family uh, equation was due to the fact that they really didn't trust God fully to do what he said he would do. That's true. Um, like Abraham and Isaac, I mean, Abraham and Sarah, Yes. God says, I'm going to make a great nation. Mm -hmm. And Sarah laughed. She says, we're going to have to help God out. After all, God helps those that help themselves. So we have Ishmael and Isaac. So we've yes. got two here that are dysfunctional. And then we go on to Isaac, of course. And then Isaac had his favorite of Esau. And Rebecca had Jacob. Yeah. And now we got family favorites. we got siblings here, which is another sad situation. Yeah. And then we have Joseph down here. And, uh, I mean, Jacob. And here Jacob is... Um, learn how to do a little slight cheating on the side and a little bit of overreaching and so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. we got the sore thing in the whole family and Joseph is unfortunately inheriting probably some of this and I can imagine too that when he told this dream, I imagine his chest puffed out just a little bit too and he sort of lorded over his older brother and say, look what I'm doing here. Yeah. You're gonna be bowing to me. And that did not help relations with the brothers at all. So I think in all in all, we got a whole dysfunctional situation here yeah. that only God can probably remedy. Yeah, I, I agree. You brought out two things that I, I, I love. I'll, I'll deal with them backwards. Um, inheritance. A family inheritance is not always a positive thing. And it's, in most of our cases, rarely a financial thing. But you inherit the baggage inherit baggage, you, you inherit weaknesses and how you deal with things. You inherit so much from your family in, in a way that in your subconscious just, just, well, this is the normal way to deal with life. This is a normal day, uh, way to deal with opposition and conflict. And you're right. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet you hear all throughout scripture, people praising, I'm a, uh, you know, we're the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know, the more you dig in, it is a positive thing, but at first it doesn't seem like it because it seems like, boy, we are a mess. Be like people listen out your family members that you don't want anyone to know you're related to. But the second thing is, you, you're correct. In this whole issue of Abraham trying to make sure and help God out, and he takes his concubine and, and has Ishmael. It's interesting to look at the conclusion of this chapter. Give us a little 
binocular vision from where we are to the end of the chapter. Who is it that Joseph has sold into slavery to? Ishmaelites. He used the term Midianite because it's an interchangeable term of that era. But they say it could be as many as 150 years from the uh, birth of Ishmael to this moment. So that's plenty of time to grow your own nation. Isn't it funny how when we try to help God out, how much we actually create a kingdom of enemies for ourselves? He's actually sold to his great uncle's band of traitors. Their family. You wouldn't do that to your family, would you? This is how messed up that family is. Because it is the Ishmaelites who buy him and sell him as if he's just some property. They don't treat him as family. Yes. So I think it was the green microphone next. Raul. Um, I'd like to spend a little bit on what the brother just said. Yeah. Um, I think that this family was would be the perfect case study for Loma Linda Health Family Therapy Department. <laughs> um, they could do a lot of research there. The, this was, you know, Joseph had, an imper had imperfect parents. Think of this. There were three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers and one stepsister all living in the home at the same time. His father was a polygamist and a passive, weak parent without much control of what was going on among the, the children. There is a little known thing about the, the culture of the day, which is um, songs were supposed to be emotionally detached from their fathers. And fathers would push their songs away emotionally from them, and the songs would be more emotionally attached to their mothers. This is very little known, but it's, mm -hmm. it's known among yeah. uh, you know, uh, scholars. Yes. And, uh, um, and here's the opposite. There's no mother, mm -hmm. and the boy is attached to his father. So it's, it's another sign of cultural and societal uh, uh, dysfunction. Yes. Uh, also, the brothers were dysfunctional, imperfect brothers. And Joseph himself was very, very <laughs> imperfect, dysfunctional. He was weak, uh, uh, immature, yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, and arrogant. One can't help but think that he was. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's amazing that God works with all of that um, baggage, we could say, and, uh, and bring the story to not only a happy, but functional end. Yes. And we're not talking here in terms of success. Mm. We are talking about in terms of faithfulness, yeah. as uh, you know, yeah. Mother Teresa put it some, you know, some time ago. Uh, that's, for me, the most important. I can be, I can, I can be faithful, and eventually I can also be successful even if I come from all this dysfunctional background. Yes. I d I, I'm so glad you said that because so many people look at their family dynamics and say, I'm cursed to repeat the sins of the past. But it's not true. 
every single one of us, with the help of God, can become something we none of our family members have ever become. And some of you have experienced that. Uh, when you introduce people to your family, inside you chuckle a little bit, perhaps, because you're so different from your family, because God took you on a path to say, I need to break some of these familial habits, these habits that have gone from generation to generation, because I need you to be powerful for my kingdom. I need you to raise your family differently, or I need you to understand relationships differently. And you're right, God uses opportunities of detachment, much like we're about to see here, and perhaps that's what happened with you, is during moments of detachment from your family, which seemed like a really tough time or bad time, it allowed you the perspective for God to grow you into something different, so that now you're helping your family to grow and become something different as well. Blue microphone, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a little bit interesting that it was the um, Bilha and Zilpah's sons were the ones that were out there. You don't hear that Leah's sons were out there um, doing all of this. And that's number one. And number two, Joseph was the first son uh, from Rachel. And Rachel was, the, you know, was the one that he, that, um, he loved. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I'll take those backwards too. Thank you, uh, Diane. Um, the scripture says he loved him because of his, of his older age, but we all assume, well, it was because it was finally your favorite wife, your first choice wife, gave you a boy. Um, and so you, you can't detach from that special relationship that, that he had um, with, with her. Leah's sons are the names of the sons that you read about that are the 10 that are out at a distance. These are the ones that are taking care of the family's big business. They're the responsible ones. They're the ones, like Raul said, who've been kicked out of the nest. And there's a, a detachment there. And so the sons of Leah are the ones who are really out there working. And the son you know, of Rachel is is being spoiled. We're going to talk a little bit more about an extra thing. We, we think it's just because it's a fancy coat and the other guys didn't get a fancy coat. It goes so much deeper than this because of what Jacob was saying to the sons of Leah. Uh, there's an understanding why they'd, they'd want him dead. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, purple microphone. Yes. Yeah, Dwight. So um, just looking at the question of why is this important individually, you know, God called Joseph in his condition, just as he was. Yeah. And I think sometimes we think about, well, God, if, if I just get things all together, I'll be ready for you to use me. Yeah. God's saying, no, 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 no. Come, I'm going to take you where you are. Yeah. And, and the process of, of walking with God, things change in us. Yeah. And he changes our situation, and then, he, and then we're more effective. But the problem is we sometimes want to figure it out first. We always want to figure it out first because we want to know what we're doing, right? We don't want to look like an idiot. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, one of my biggest fears in starting the Bible Lab five years ago is I didn't want to look like an idiot. Too late for that. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what we were going to talk about because even though I'm a theologian, 
I, I only knew about six weeks worth of content. And, you know, the deal is, just like your story, just like the story of Joseph, just like everyone in here, God takes you in an immature, in, in, in a, a state where you're unaware, you're unknowledgeable of what you need to know, and he walks you week by week, step by step, to say, it's okay, you don't have to know everything starting out. In fact, had I known everything or even seen what God was going to do with this group and through this group, uh, I could have gotten cocky. I could have been, oh, yeah, we got this, and I could have relaxed. But God doesn't need us relaxed. He needs us anxious. He needs us always to be stirred and anxious that I don't, I don't know enough. I, there's no way I could possibly, because when we're in that state, we're teachable. I've taught uh, many different years of, of, uh, of school. High school, by far, uh, was one of the most hilarious ones for me. I've taught university classes, and those are, are great. The students are all taking notes and, and very, you know, very much attentive because their grade depends on it. The high school, you don't care. And especially sophomore, you already know everything. <laughs> Why do I have to stay awake in this class? Why can't I do my history and English during this class? So it's during the times when you think you know enough that you are in a, in a sophomoric state, that God's like, you need a thrown-in-the-pit experience. And we see Joseph here in a very sophomoric mindset. He knows it all. He doesn't need to worry about anything. Everything's secure. I want you to look at verse 3 where NIV translates the, the phrase ornate robe. But if you were to take the, the words literally how they were defined during this day it would be called an outer garment of ends and the reason why it's called an outer garment of ends is because it was different in styling of the other coats that were typically used his brothers had a different type of coat um, this extends this ornate robe extends more like a gown to the hands and the ankles so it's a long coat but it also has sleeves his brother's coats did not have sleeves. In fact, they just barely went below the waist, kind of like a poncho made of wool. Just kind of pop your arms out, and it was made so you could work. This coat was not a coat for work. It's long, it's got these sleeves, it's ornate. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament. They went through just before the time of Christ and they translated into Greek so that people could still understand what the Bible said. And when they translated it, they translated this phrase into a coat of many colors. And that's why today we have the belief that, well, it not only was this ornate coat with sleeves and really long, but it had all these ornate colors on it. It was ornamented in, in some way. But there's one more challenge with this coat. It's not simply that he got a more expensive coat, kind of like uh, you, you give your one kid a, a beater-up old Hyundai and you give the other kid a Porsche, brand new. Um, there would be issues there. And that's how we typically have looked at this and said, well, he gave all the other kids these natural color coats and he gave Joseph this multicolor coat. 
And so that was like giving him a Porsche instead of a secondhand beater-up car. That's not, that's not what it was. Because he gave him a coat that signified leadership, administration. This coat would be worn by a dignitary who was in charge of the family. This coat signified that Jacob was going to do a common practice. Should the eldest son of one wife die, you could grant the birthright to the oldest son of your second wife. You see what's happening here? If you read the chapters leading up, you saw some pretty bad stuff. And one of the things is Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, had just offended his father greatly. How? He went and he took his father's concubine and he didn't just take her out to dinner. And so Jacob is saying, Reuben, you're dead to me. You've offended me so great by taking my concubine that I'm going to give the birthright to the firstborn son of my second wife. I'm going to give the birthright to Joseph. That's why they're so upset. Because the birthright is jumping lines. It's no longer under their mother, it's under their mother's sister. And so this is a major, a major statement. It's not simply a nicer coat. It is a transference of birthright. And that's why they're upset. So, question is, why didn't God send Jacob a vision instructing him that his favoritism was ripping the children of Israel apart? By the way, Jacob's name is... Israel, that's right. Why is God often silent in these matters? That's one thing I want you to be pondering right now. Why do you think God is often silent in these matters that seem so important in guiding important families like this? And I want you to be thinking about that because we're going to join it together with this second section, which is Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, I have it up here on the screen. It reads, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, do you hear this dream a little bit differently with a young man with a birthright coat? It's differently. He just gets this coat. And then he announces to them, by the way, that's right, I'm the new head of the family. Verse 9, then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, 
what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I, which is the moon and the sun, and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the matter, but his father kept the matter in mind. So, why do you think God gave Joseph these dreams knowing that it would widen the rift between Joseph and his brothers? What's going on here? What are you guys seeing here in this story? Does this make sense that God would send a vision into a time that this could actually cause more issues? What do you think's going on here? What's God doing in a time like this? I think you could make a case that if God hadn't given him the dreams, the brothers might not have sold him into slavery, so he never would have gone to Egypt. Oh, okay. And I wonder about, you know, was it God that really caused J- Joseph to go to G- Egypt? And so you have to start thinking, is God looking at a bigger picture? I mean, obviously, Joseph is going to be the bloodline going to Jesus, yeah. but still, uh, you know, what, what, what begat the other? And uh, that just raised that question. Yeah, and I, I, I love that. That's, it's brilliant because that's the question we have to ask. Um, because it says a lot about God's character. And those of us who are parents, we, we, we try looking at this, at this and saying, yeah, there's sometimes I have to let my kid fall and scrape their knee and get hurt because they're not listening to me. I'm, I'm warning them. I'm telling them all this stuff. And, 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 and there's certain times in your parenting, you're like, oh, my word, I've got I've to find another way. You know, because you've got some kids that if you just look at them crosswise, well, they're in tears and they'll never do it again. And then you've got the other kid where you can't take enough stuff away. Their, their bedroom's empty. You've taken everything. You left them a mattress, and they're like, whatever. I'm good. What do you have to do to bring that life change to your kids? So a lot of people have looked at that and said, perhaps this is God's way of saying, look, and, and, and we read about this in our yes, no, and maybe statements. Does, does God bring pain? Does God allow the pain? Does he put you in a situation to show the worst of yourself so he can make the best of you? And that's something we're going to dig into here a little bit more in a moment. Was purple mic or blue mic next? Purple. Yes. Yeah, this, this, this might be a simplistic view, uh-huh. but I just wanted to know if, if, if this doesn't fall in God's pattern of showing people what he intends to do before it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's a question many of us are asking right now. Is this, is this how God operates? We're going to get into that in just a moment. I want to get to the blue mic first. Yeah, Brian. No, I'm just one. Wasn't Rachel already dead? Is that the moon referring to her, or is it referring to Leah? I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's, it's just a yeah, question a I've great, always had. Great question, because a lot of commentators struggle with, with this, the, the telling of, of this story. Um, it actually comes from two different sources, this, this story. And what we read today is a blending of, of the sources. Um, because you don't have two characters mentioned in the story. You don't have Benjamin, the youngest son, and, and you don't have you know, Joseph's mom and Benjamin's mom, Rachel. You don't have them in, in this story. 
Many commentators say it's simply because you know how stories become legend and there's certain ways of, of telling the story. Um, it, they're just left out of the telling because the main characters, the important characters that you will follow along. Benjamin is a character, but he's not really all that important until the very, very end of, of our story that we're going to go through. The important thing is the dynamic between a father and his sons that 10 of the sons hate one of his sons and, and, and what's going on here. And many people also look at it from the standpoint of the important story is this, and this is what we're going to see throughout this series, is a son is sold into slavery by whom? By his own people. A son is sold into slavery by his own people, his brothers, who in chapters earlier we've, we've seen are killers. What's the story of Christ? God's son is sold into slavery of sin by whom? His own people who are killers. But yet, the hero, the savior, the most important thing is that he's willing to go into the pit. He's willing to go into slavery, into a land that is not his own. Sold to people who should also be related. Treated the way he is. Why? Because God's salvation is always one that says, I'm willing to go wherever necessary, whether fair or not, and it's always unfair, so that I can buy back the killer. Not the perfect people, but the killers who have betrayed you. So many commentators look at this and say, what's been preserved is the most important part. And so these other characters, um, we obviously know that there's another brother. And we obviously know that Rachel needs to be alive to have that brother. We believe that he probably is not born at this time because he's not favored as the youngest son you know, with how Joseph is, excuse me, how Jacob is acting at this time. Now, I want you to see a, a couple of things here in, in closing. Genesis 37, 12 through 36. I'm going to have you read it uh, through this afternoon yourself. But a couple of things are brought up in this section. Joseph is sent out by his father to go check in on his brothers and to come back and give a report. What do we know about Joseph's report so far? Okay, he's going to come back and gossip about his brothers. So the brothers aren't going to be really excited because they already know this story. That's why Scripture tells you that tidbit earlier. Because it's not a good thing to have the tattletale come and check in on the older brothers, who especially don't hate him now. So it's interesting to see in verse 15 through 17, it says Joseph's lost, okay? <laughs> Obviously, he has not been brought up to be self-sufficient. He's the kid of yours that you are afraid to send him to the corner store. You're checking in on your kid. Did they make it to the store? Did they get everything I need for the store? Are they going to make it home from the store? They're just not prepared for life. Joseph's wandering the hillside. I can't find my brothers. And it says, a man found him and told him where to go said, oh yeah, your brothers are at this place. I, I, I want you to go there. 
This is interesting from the standpoint that in Jewish tradition, from the rabbins, that all, all the main rabbis, and one of the targums, and targum is basically like a commentary for the first five books of, of the Bible for the Jews. These targums were, were these uh, basically commentaries to help you understand what it's saying, kind of like what we do in the Bible app. So the Jewish tradition tells us that this man who directed Joseph in the field, they guess it was the angel Gabriel in the form of a man, which tells you something about their theology of God. That Joseph in this moment would have given up and gone back home and been safe. And the story would have been much different. Wouldn't have been thrown in a pit, wouldn't have been sold into slavery. Wouldn't have had to go down to Egypt and experience a couple of decades of really hard life. Instead, the Jewish mindset, their understanding of God was saying, in this moment, God saw Joseph wasn't going to go through the slavery experience, be thrown into a pit, and so God led him to get into that situation. What do you think of that? You agree with that? Disagree with it? Over here, red mic. Argument. Okay, I've heard the argument that um, if Joseph hadn't been in that situation at that time with the Ishmaelite traders coming through, because his brothers had originally intended to kill him, yeah. and they switched their minds and decided to sell him into slavery. Mm. Um, if they hadn't been that specific situation, they would have gone through with killing him so that he couldn't have inherited yes. the birthright. I, I, I love that. I love that from the standpoint of many people look at the, the trial and the pain as the end of life. It's the end of my life. It's the end of the world. When we don't realize that it is very legitimate as we see the consistent behavior of God to say, look, there are times when I need to work out the timing to bring you through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, but I am with you. Because unless I take you through this experience, there is a worse experience, and it is death. And so I, I do love that. Yeah, back here, green mic. Yeah, I, I think um, it's as, as much as you can learn from this story just on its own, I think it's really important also to make the connection of it being a type of the story of redemption through Jesus. Yes. And the, the idea, too, that as much as this experience was for Joseph's benefit mm -hmm. in um, growth and character, character development, it also was for his family, and you could even take it as far as to say to save the nation of Israel yeah. um, in a physical and spiritual sense. Uh, but I think um, I think it, it, it also kind of answers the previous question that was asked, too, of, um, you know, uh, why did God give Joseph, Joseph the dream? Um, but I, I think it, it's all because God had this plan to save this family, yes. um, this immediate family and also the greater spiritual family. Um, and and it, it shows that, you know, like the with the previous question, I think, um, and sorry if I'm getting a little off track here, but the idea that I, I don't know if I could say that God always would shy away from possibly causing division because that's what 
we see when, when Jesus came to earth and preached, he caused a lot of division, unfortunately, and it was because of the state of people's hearts. Um, and so uh, that I, I don't know if I would totally say that God should have avoided um, giving Joseph these dreams because it would have caused division in the family. And ultimately, you see in the end of Genesis, when Joseph is speaking to his brothers about the situation, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I think that was a reminder to them of their true intention. And if God, had, God hadn't given that vision in the beginning, they may have had an out in saying, well, what we did wasn't so bad because it ultimately led to some type of good. And that was a reminder from God saying, this was my plan to save you guys. It wasn't anything that you did. And that, I think, is important in the context of using this story as a way to also understand redemption through Jesus. It's not anything that we did that kind of ended up, you know, saving ourselves. Yeah. It was, it's God's plan. Um, and I, I think that, that kind of leads me to believe that, yeah, God did want Joseph to go through this and to be yeah. sold into slavery into Egypt, not to, not to experience pain on its own, but for this greater purpose. Yeah. I, th I love it. I, I agree. I agree with that. I see a lot of love it cards going up too. You know, it's interesting, and, and you bring up this parallelism to Jesus Christ's life. Um, most people don't know that Jesus' own brothers wanted him dead, and they actually sent him into a situation wanting him assassinated. Um, uh, and on another point, he, Jesus is in the house preaching. There's all these people there. And his brothers and sisters show up and say, we have got to get him. He is out of his mind. So if Jesus' own family couldn't get it and couldn't understand, don't be surprised when your own family doesn't get it and doesn't understand either. Because... We're not greater than Christ himself, and even Christ's own family had such great dysfunction in misunderstanding the plan of salvation and who Jesus really was as well. Yes, sir, read mine. Does there a parallel that comes where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted? Yeah. There seems to be the intention of God yeah. for that to happen. Yeah. Parallel Joseph, maybe again. I agree. God needs to lead us not into places where we fall. And I think this is the interesting thing, and this is why we get the story of Joseph as such a, a man of strong character. Jesus did not lead Joseph into the pit so he would fall. He did not lead him into slavery and ultimately Egypt so he would fall. He led him into the life experience he needed so he would grow and he would become and he would strengthen, and, and ultimately, he would be the hero God made him to be. But you can't become the hero and stay in comfort. And I think that's the problem with our society today. We're praying and praying, God, bring me this into my life so I'm finally comfortable. When God says, that's the worst thing for you, I made you a hero. I need to make you as uncomfortable as possible. Because you'll never become the hero God made you to be as long as you're comfortable. you got to go through the tough experience. And in your life, as you've been going through all the things you want to forget, all the bad moments, all the trials, all the family problems and dynamics and dysfunction, instead of forgetting it, God needs you to use it. He needs you to say, that's why I put you in your family. is because you would be weak of character had you not been with your family. 
You would in no way be as passionate or strong or have the ability to do what you do relationally today had you not grown up in that home. The number one thanks that we all need to have for God today is we didn't, well, I hope you didn't, grow up in a perfect family. It's the, it's the pain that God uses to grow you, to cement you into this hero that he needs you to be, to have the answers that you need to have when people come to you and say, I'm struggling, I'm going through this issue. You can speak from empathy, not sympathy. And you can breathe into them God's divine plan, which is to grow us and to make us into the heroes of faith that he needs us to be. Aren't you so thankful that God gives us stories like these so when we look at our lives, we can say, thank God I haven't had to go through that. God obviously has given you a compliment today saying, well, you had to go through what you did, but it wasn't this. But God wants to use all of it, all of that pain to help you to be observant to the world around you, to not only your blood relative family, but the community around you because a famine is coming. And some would argue a famine is here. And he needs the people of God who are, who are awake to the fact that we are spiritual beings living a human experience. And that God needs that spiritual connection right now. Not for you to be discouraged by the life you've gone through, but to be encouraged that God said, I put you there because I needed to build you strong for what's to come. Because unless you're strong in what's to come, I don't have my spokesperson in that place and time. And you are that person. That's right, God made you to be incredibly powerful in the time and the place that he put you. And even in the crazy family that he put you in as well. Now, I really hope that you come back for our next episode because we talk about what happens when Joseph goes down to Egypt, it, it doesn't get better. It seems like things just keep getting worse. What do you do in your life when you're going through hardship and what's bad goes from bad to worse? Where is God in all that? I hope you'll come back for the next episode because that's what we address. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.